Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4, will be in verses 7 through 10 this morning. As a heads up, Ryan will be out of the pulpit for a number of weeks on uh, what will be a short vacation and then a return for his traditional month off in the summer for writing and some other things. So while Ryan is playing video games, I will have the pleasure of <laughs> preaching for these next number of weeks through James. As you pray for your pastors, and I hope you do, please pray for, for Ryan for rest and refreshment. Rhythms of rest and return are very important for an enduring ministry, especially in soul work, which preaching is. Question. What are we to do with ourselves when we are embroiled in a quarrel with a brother or a sister in Christ? What are we to do with ourselves when we're embroiled in a quarrel with a brother or a sister in Christ? That may be you right now. It may not be. I would say that this is not a big problem at our church. It might be more of a problem if we all knew each other a little better. But by God's grace, this is not a quarreling church. But this is a church full of people ripe for a quarrel, large and small. And this is a church filled with people who do quarrel from time to time. And this is a church that is vulnerable to becoming a quarreling church. And so this morning, the Holy Spirit, through his word, wants to help you and help me, help all of us to know what to do with ourselves when we are embroiled in a quarrel. And giving attention to the solution now will protect us from this problem later. So let's read together James 4, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let me point out a few structural observations in what is a barrage of commands. The commands in verse 7 and 10, they're parallel. Submit yourselves to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. The word in verse 7 for submit is actually related to the word in verse 10 for humble. And this passage follows a word from James about quarreling, which ends with a word about humility specifically. And then comes our passage, which ends on a note of humility. So I take it that the diverse commands in verses 7 through 10 are different angles on the command to humble yourself before the Lord. What are we to do with ourselves when we're embroiled in a quarrel with a brother and a sister in Christ? Well, the Bible has much to say about this and more to say about it than what James says. But James is content here in his letter to his readers to say an answer. In some, humble yourselves before the Lord. So here's God's word on what that means, how that works, and where that leads. And we'll find as we work through this passage that our default understanding of humility needs some work and it's about to get a serious upgrade and that's a good thing. Well, in the first part of verse seven, James tells us plainly what humility means. Submit yourselves therefore 
to God, he says. And this is what we'll call the essence of humility. The essence of humility. It doesn't sound like a verse about humility, but perhaps that's because we aren't as biblical in our thinking about humility as we think that we are. We usually think about humility as a horizontal thing. Humility, one relationship, one person in relationship to another. But humility, biblically speaking, is first a matter of our posture in relation to God. And as it turns out, this vertical relationship that each of us has with God is crucial, is a crucial dimension in our quarrels and to their resolution. So let's back up in the chapter a bit to see this a little bit better. Chapter four begins, as we heard last week, with a very direct question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James asks his readers. And as he starts with this question, James pounds his readers with a string of three questions crafted to convince his readers that they indeed have a serious problem on their hands. One that they have underestimated. And of course, they might have had some obvious answer to that question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The other person caused the quarrel and the fight. That's the obvious, easy answer. But James is not asking who started it. They knew they had a problem with fighting one another. But if they were, to, if they were going to find any help, they needed to understand their problem at a level or two deeper than he said and she said. With physical problems, there are symptoms and there are deeper causes and explanations. And so it is with relational problems. In our quarreling, we have more than a problem in our hands, but a problem in our hearts. And so like a good physician, James addresses those deeper problems with a second question. And this one is a rhetorical question. The latter part of verse one, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? And of course, the answer is yes. When things have reached the level of a quarrel, passions have been at war within each party. Look at the imagery. Is this not a description of what happens in our hearts? Our passions war within us. This is why we toss and turn at night our minds filled with argumentation back and forth, what we imagine them saying and what we would say back. Their thoughts as we imagine them and our correcting thoughts. I don't know anything about this, but I've heard that some do this in their heads. This is why you're glazed over at the dinner table because your mind is on a controversy. I also don't know anything about this, but I've heard that people can be glazed over at the dinner table. Our bombs going off in our brains. And if you're not careful, you'll open your mouth the next day and light your life on fire. In fact, Satan with the fire of hell is trying to light the wick of your tongue for that very purpose, as we've found in James chapter 3. Your passions are at war within you, James says. He understands the soul. And that's why he asked yet a third question. And this one is of a different kind still. It's intended to shock his readers into reality. To shock them. Verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or he puts it more personally, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy 
of God. It doesn't get more sharp than that. No more difficult diagnosis could be offered to a church. Whether quarreling is your sin right now or not, who can't be alarmed with these words? It's like when one child is being disciplined and the next looks on with eyes wide open, a sober moment, a chance to take inventory. And so just when we might think that this can only end bad, there are words of great hope for his hearers. For thankfully, the Bible never, ever, ever leaves us. For as long as we're breathing, for as long as we're breathing, the Bible never leaves us with mere condemnation or correction or a verdict of wrong. But the Bible always, God always gives us hope. And so we see in verse six, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace precisely to those who are quarreling. Grace where God not only does not give us what we deserve, but gives to us what we don't deserve. Grace where God lavishes upon us kindness without measure and freely and happily. And grace of which the only thing better is more grace. And he offers that. And why does God do this? Because God is more moved by the troubled state of his children than we ever could be. And that's why James says in verse 5, he yearns jealously over us. Over those who are his, he yearns jealousy. Jealously. He is jealous for peace among his children, as I'm jealous for peace among my children. Our diagnosis is bad because of our sin, but because of God's grace, our prognosis is miraculously good. Yes, because of his marvelous and limitless grace. And this grace, by its very nature, cannot be earned. But this grace, because of its very nature, does have terms. Look at verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We will all get one thing from God or another. We will either get his opposition or we will get his grace. And the difference? Well, God opposes the proud, which means he opposes those who are opposed to him. Those who hold with a tight fist their reputation in a quarrel, their position, their sense of innocence. Can you blame him for opposing those who oppose him? God could not speak more strongly about human pride than he does in the Proverbs. Proverbs 6 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. First on his list, haughty eyes. That's pride. Or Proverbs 8, 13, pride and arrogance I hate. But God gives grace to the humble, which means he helps those who want his help. And he helps them more than they could have imagined or asked. And he loves to do this. And he stands by willing and ready to help with grace and more grace for those who will confess their need of it. And this is different than the popular slogan, God helps those who help themselves. No, God helps those who know they can't help themselves and are willing to admit it and receive his help. That's what this means. So brothers and sisters, God opposes the proud. Hear this. But hear this. He gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. Submit yourself to him. Submit your thoughts to him. Submit your hearts to him. Submit your words to him. 
Submit your place in a quarrel to him. Spurgeon wrote this. Do not desire to be the principal man in the church. Be lowly. Be humble. The best man in the church is the man who is willing to be a doormat for all, who wipe their, for all to wipe their boots on. The brother who does not mind what happens to him at all, so long as God is glorified. Submission involves giving ourselves to the command and to the will and to the purpose of another. Submission is hard for us in general, sinners between sinners, because we are often played by another. We are manipulated, we are taken advantage of, even harmed, so we're skittish and hesitant. But God doesn't play anyone. It is right to submit to him because he's God. And it is good to submit to God because God is good. No, humility is not personal warmth. It's not a genuine smile. These are good things. It's not quietness in large groups. Quietness is praised in the Proverbs. And I have known many proud, quiet people. And I have known one, at least, proud, loud person. That's me. Humility, rather, is submitting yourself to God willingly, happily, and eagerly. It is defined in relation first to God. And this will affect how we engage one another in conflict. Consider this, that if pride is the greatest sin, then the greatest miracles in the Christian life are seen even in the smallest expressions of humility, in even the smallest conflicts. And I suspect there are many quarrels that have never happened or gotten to that level among you all because you have submitted yourselves to God. This is the essence of humility. Now, how does humility work? In verse, the rest of verse 7 through 9, James gives us some things to do in order to humbly receive God's grace. And this is the work of humility, verses 7 through 9. The work of humility. Grace is the medicine that we need in our quarrels. Pride is allergic to God's grace because pride is allergic to God. It doesn't like God being God. It wants to be God. But those who humble themselves are perfect candidates for the medicine of God's grace. And so in what follows, we have, we could say, the instructions on the side of a medicine bottle. In the string of commands, we have two movements. Verses seven and eight. Here they are. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humility requires a movement against the devil. A movement of sustained resistance against the devil. And to obey this, you need to embrace two pretty radical ideas. First is that the devil really is real. And he's at play here. Now, if you don't believe the Bible, it may well be that you don't believe in the devil, but I would urge you to believe in the devil. And I say this seriously because he really doesn't want you to believe in him. That's part of his scheme. And as it is, it doesn't make sense not to believe in the devil. Every thoughtful person believes that there are injustices in the world. The question is whether those injustices are the result ultimately of randomness and accidental causes or the result of a personal cause. 
And as Christians who believe the Bible, we believe that injustice is personal. And that's why we take injustice personally. There's a real someone behind the horror of what we call human sin and all tragedy in this world. Injustice isn't merely bad, it's evil. It's not merely tragic, but it's satanic. So Christian, don't forget about the devil in your quarrels. He is engaged in this. He does have an interest in this. He is plotting and working and scheming. He tempted Eve to eat the fruit. Her husband watched her and then he blamed her from the bush for his own sin. And the devil was behind Cain's jealous murder of Abel only a page later. He's behind every fight, every cruel thought, word, and deed. And this is the one who sets our tongues on fire with hell. James is right. We are all tempted when our own desires lure us and we chase them. But the devil is in the mix and he must not be ignored for he is the most productive when we are the most forgetful of his schemes. And he's driven by his own pride. Pride is where he got where he is. In Isaiah 14, 13, we get a poetic allusion to this. You said in your heart, the Lord says, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. I will make myself like the most high are those damning words. Pride not only says, I don't need your help to God. It says, I don't need you even more. It actually says to God, I don't need you because I am greater than you. I actually don't need you. It's a delusion. It's Satan's delusion. And it's one that he's very good at spreading. Here's another radical thing that this verse means. It means this, the devil called the God of this world. You, my friend, if you're in Christ, can resist the devil. And get this, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. It's right there in the Bible. If you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. So don't think that resistance is futile. It's certainly not. You have here a promise he will flee from you. The devil will work so hard, but apparently in some fashion, eventually he sort of gives up. He flees. One of the ways he gets you to give up on resisting is by saying over and over again to you, resistance is futile. I'll never leave you alone. Well, yes, he will leave you alone. So please call his bluff. Yes, he'll be back to try again. And he's crafty. So he'll come back at a point in which you're vulnerable. Don't ever stop resisting. Don't ever put your guard down. But please know that if you continue resisting, if you persist in resisting against temptation, the devil flees. Temptation may never go away completely for this or that area. But it does get easier, if I could say it. So resist. Pick your sin. This is a potent promise that none of us can forget. So that's the first movement, a movement against the devil. There's a second movement, and it's a movement toward God. And this one is very important. This is where our resistance against the devil actually gets its energy and its fuel, its power. And these two movements correspond to one another because you can't very easily resist the devil if you're resisting God at the same time. And you can't very easily draw near to God if really what you want is to draw near to the devil. You can't have two masters. So resist the devil and draw near to God. And what does it mean to draw near God? 
Well, in the context, it does not mean to draw near to him in conversion or salvation. The scripture tells us that we were far away from God, but he has brought us near to himself through the blood of Christ. So you are near to God in a sense that does not change by his spirit if you're saved. There's a nearness to God, however, apparently, that is nearer even still, if I could say. He's not talking about drawing near in conversion, but near to God in contrition. So whereas you have resisted him in sin, stop resisting God and draw near to him in contrition. And here we have a beautiful reminder that our relationship with God is the most important consideration in our quarrels. How easy it is for us in our quarrels to ignore God and focus merely on the matter in front of us. Oh, that's a recipe for uh, great trouble. The first order of business is to draw near to God and resist the devil in a quarrel. So draw near to him. When you're feeling attacked, draw near to God. And when you're tempted to attack, draw near to God. Resist the devil. Resist his deceitful promise that repaying evil for evil will be satisfying for it will only feed a hunger for more and more vindication. You're in no place to repay evil for evil as a sinner yourself. Resist the Satan's deceitful promise that saying what you're thinking will feel good. It will only burn this relationship down. Resist his deceitful suggestion that you need to be seen by others as innocent. This is so tempting. We want others to know that we're cleared of guilt. If we feel that we're cleared of guilt, or at least we're not guilty of this or guilty of that, then we can be tempted to speak ill of somebody that we're in a quarrel with, to slander against them, to gossip about them. But you cannot draw near to God when you are laboring to exalt and protect yourself. Drawing near to God and resisting the devil and quarrel will mean taking some things on the chin. It will mean eating it. It will also mean coming before God in contrition for your own sin in part. Drawing near to God may be difficult for some because you love your sin. And I would just urge you to believe God's word concerning your sin and give it up. It'll be difficult to others that is drawing near to God because you don't believe Satan will ever flee. You're resisting, you're struggling here. You don't love your sin, but you're struggling and you're losing heart because you think that this won't end and you think you're gonna lose. No, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Believe God's promise. But it may be difficult for others because you're ashamed of your sin. So let me comfort you with these words. And this observation that James is writing this command to draw near to God to readers who are themselves guilty of quarreling and fighting amongst one another. And guess what? This one comes with a promise too that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And how incredibly humbling is that thought? The only thing more amazing than the devil fleeing when you or I resist him is that God would draw near to us when we draw near to him. And consider the length to which God has gone to show us that he is willing to do this and eager to do this in case you don't believe it. Remember the story of the prodigal son. 
who insists on having his inheritance from his father and casts out, squanders it all, years later returns with his tail between his leg, hoping only to be a servant in his father's house. But his father, who was betrayed by his son in great, significant, and deep ways, receives his son with open arms and a happy heart and a party. And consider the cross that makes it all possible. Here's John Stott reflecting on the cross. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It is your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we visited a place called Calvary. For it is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. And so we sing together, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride. That's one of the last century's greatest theologians put it when asked how he remained humble in the course of such deep study and wide influence, he had only to say, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside a cross? So I pray you're standing beside a cross today. It is the key. And be encouraged that there's a snowball effect to this push and pull, this resistance and drawing near a snowball effect in the cycle to sanctification as you resist the devil he flees and resistance gets easier as you draw near to God he draws near to you and resistance to the devil gets easier because who would want to let go of God then as you draw near to God as Stott said you're made humbler for you are made to see your life and your quarrel in its proper divine light Give this cycle time and you won't be able to remember the person that you were vulnerable to the sins that you were vulnerable to. Give this cycle time and your quarrels will be easier to manage because your passions won't be warring so strongly within you. You, will must, you must continue resisting, but resistance will get easier. So humility has two movements, one against the devil and one toward God. It also has two sides, two sides. An inside and an outside. Verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is the scope of humility's work. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's the outside. And the background for this is the image of temple cleansings where priests under the old covenant would cleanse themselves outwardly, ritually, Symbolic of their representation of God's people as they would approach God now clean in a symbolic way. Well, Jesus, our great high priest, he's gone into God's presence perfectly clean because of his own righteousness. And he represents us in that righteousness so that we can meet with God ourselves. And he says, cleanse your hands. And for us, it means cleansing our hands, not in order to safely go into God's presence, but because we can safely go into God's presence. He redeems us in order that we would be changed. So cleanse your hands. That's the outside. But then he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that's the inside. For Christianity is not merely an outward religion concerned with outward fixes, but an inward religion 
where outward change actually flows from inward change. Our hearts are filled with warring passions and these need to be made to cease fire. We must command our passions and purify them and we can command them to cease fire by God's spirit which he's given to us. So if you have thought humility was being merely nice, well, it's a whole lot more than nice, isn't it? We might be nice precisely because we're too proud to have our reputation compromised by disagreement. But that's timidity, and humility is not the same thing as timidity. And neither is humility bound up in a bunch of superficial social symbols. Sometimes pride is crafty enough, it's insightful enough, it's shrewd enough that it knows how not to look like pride. In fact, it would take pride in appearing humble, knowing that that's a more exalted kind of an honorable position. And so it knows not to brag or how to send signals and not send other signals. But as Randy Alcorn put it this way, humility is not pretending we're unworthy because it's spiritual. It's recognizing we're unworthy because it's absolutely true. To protect humility is a form of prideful, to project humility is a form of prideful double-mindedness. Someone who says one thing with the mouth but does another thing in the heart. Someone who is shifty. Don't be shifty. Humility is neither timidity or false humility. True humility resists the devil and his schemes. It's ferocious. It's persistent. It's strong. And true humility draws near to God. It's tenacious for God's presence. It's ambitious for the presence of God. And both of these movements against the devil and toward God lead to the work of cleansing inside and out. Our hands and our hearts In other words, growing in godliness and becoming more holy and repenting. And in this command to cleanse the hands and purify the heart, James is essentially calling them to repentance for everything he's called them to so far. Away from impartiality and quarreling and cruel speech. He's calling them to godliness, to holiness, to be complete people, consistent inside and out. And in this, he's calling them to be truly and beautifully and completely human. Make no mistake, what James is calling us to is nothing less than the reformation, than a reformation in the deepest parts of our being and the most profound of our relationships, our relationship with God. And for this reason, this kind of inside out change is also accompanied by two sounds, two sounds, or rather, A change in two sounds, one that stops and another that starts, one that must go away and one that must grow. Verse nine, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We talk about having a productive cough. It's good for the body. Well, James is talking about a productive cry, a cry that helps your soul get better. A cry that is a symbol that your soul is getting better. It's the cry of one sad for sin before God. And this is not in contradiction, this command to be gloomy, to mourn. It is not in contradiction with other commands we receive in the Bible. Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice always. Indeed, joy should pervade the Christian life. But the kind of joy that James is talking about is the kind of joy that actually doesn't mind sin at all. It laughs when it should cry. It is not joy in the Lord. It's actually joy in the world. And that kind of joy must be turned 
to mourning. I'll be vague, but let me say that Christy and I came into a story of a family on the East Coast this past week, a family destroyed by sin. It's not anyone any of you know. Kids whose lives are turned upside down by the sin of a father, and it all goes back to him. The children are suffering tremendously. The mother is brokenhearted, desperate for help. My wife is very sensitive to people's pain. I was out of town for much of the week, but we've been on the phone and texting about this family a bit. When I returned home, we debriefed on the week and she said her eyes were hurting from crying. Eyes hurt from crying. And her chest hurt like a weight was on it as if someone had died. Christy has always had a kind of physical correspondence to emotional turmoil. It's a beautiful thing. My friends, one way to feel the sadness of sin is to ponder its effects. And that's why James gave us the image of fire that destroys everything in its path. And when you are close enough to your own sin to see its effects or someone else's sin to feel its effects, cancel the next phone call, cancel the next engagement, cancel your plans and cry. It's good for the soul. It's right. And where your sin is bringing about evil effects and where your sin needs repentance, pray for the grace to cry. The destruction of lies and relationships by sin is not funny, it's tragic. And so where there is sin, humility before God sounds like mourning, not joy, and crying, not laughing. Which leads to yet another cycle. For the more holy we become, the more we perceive unholiness in our hearts and we mourn for it. But this cycle includes resolutions of real joy for that's where it leads. For true humility, which is free from the paranoia of what others think, adds, uh, makes us able to enjoy life freely and to laugh freely. And so on the other side of mourning and grief and crying, there is always real joy in the Lord. And yet there is then more awareness of sin. And so life is just like this as we grow until God wipes our tears in the new creation. Remember how God gives more grace? Now the surprise of humility in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We've seen what humility means. We've heard how humility works. This is the surprising place that humility leads. And who would have thought it would seem like the promise of exaltation would compromise real humility, but apparently not. And so apparently we need another adjustment in our understanding of what humility really, really is. Paul actually motivated his readers in a very familiar, a more familiar passage from Ephesians 2, Philippians 2, which you may recognize, a passage as well aimed at help, helping a church deal with quarreling. So we're not alone. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the connection between your relationship with God and your humility before others. Here Paul unpacks the humility of Christ and his exaltation. Christ, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Humiliation before exaltation. This is the pattern. Christ humbled himself to the point of death. He did not open his mouth when falsely accused. He did not lash out when he was being lashed. He did not return evil when evil was swallowing him up whole on the cross. For it was for the joy set before him, scripture says, that he endured the cross, despising its shame. He had something that he was looking forward to, which included his own exaltation. And so he entrusted his soul to the Father as an example for us to entrust our souls to our fathers and our quarrels. How is it humble to look forward to this? It's humble because it is not we who will exalt ourselves. No, that is pride. It is we who entrust our futures to the Lord who will do it. And so as it turns out, the promise that humility precedes exaltation is actually really, really important. It's what pulled Jesus through the suffering of the cross and allowed him to take it on the chin. And it is what allows us to work through our suffering and it is what demands that we confess our sins when our part is real. So what are we to do with ourselves when we're embroiled in a quarrel with a brother or sister in Christ? Well, all that, but if we put it in a sentence, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, which is humiliating, for we are a prideful people. We pray that you would Uh, let this word have its way with us, that we would be humbled by it, that we would be a humble people, that we would not be a quarreling church because we are a church filled with people who are measured in our speech and not at war in our passions within us, but who look to the cross where Jesus himself did not fight. We thank you for James's hard words and we thank you especially for his encouraging and hopeful words of exaltation, of the promise that Satan will flee when we resist him and especially for the promise, Father, that you will draw near to us when we draw near to you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.